Well, good morning, everyone. This is our last week in the book of Galatians. We've learned a lot about freedom and grace. What is the gospel? What isn't the gospel? Uh, that it's not just learning for learning's sakes or, or knowing facts. It's about changing us. The Word of God having us uh, think about our thoughts. Think about our actions and about our words we use. How we represent the Lord and how we treat each other. Next week, we're going to start in the book of Joshua. And uh, when we finished the book of Exodus earlier, I guess in January of this year, I really wanted to go into the book of Joshua, just straight into it. But I thought it'd be better to, to put in a New Testament book uh, in between them. So let's, uh, uh, let's pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for these writings from Paul 2,000 years ago that can apply to our lives today. We pray that the things that we learned about grace and mercy and how to treat each other and all the things that, that we've gone through here aren't lost in, in just our world, but that, that, are, that are here for us to, uh, to feed on, to grow in, to start to understand the ways of the world versus the ways of God and, and how different those are. And we pray that we can implement those into our lives on a daily basis through the help of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you bless our time and our study today. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, we ended last week talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And, and what a wonderful fruit it is. It's so complex and it has so many facets to it that it will take a, really a lifetime to, for us to implement it into our lives. And if we allow the Holy Spirit to help in the process, it can, it can happen quicker and we become more like Jesus on a daily basis. One verse that we didn't cover really was uh, the very last verse in chapter 5. And, you know, we go through this passage about how the, the world lives. And then we go through the fruit of the uh, fruit of the spirit and how we should be living and and then Paul writes in verse 26 let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other one of the dangers for a maturing christian is to forget that they are just like everyone else a sinner in need of a savior we we start to to, to think we're better than other people instead of thinking about how the Lord can use us in any situation and, and, and uh, amongst our friends and family and even strangers. And we start focusing outward. And the danger is we become conceited. And this leads to others reacting to our haughtiness. And, and you know, it can lead to, to this conundrum where a person is provoked into disliking us, but at the same time envying our walk with the Lord. It's, a, it's a really a weird thought. But we're, we're, we're to encourage, we're to guide, to, to make sound judgments in our actions and leave the judging to the Lord. If we don't, it can lead to what Paul talks about in chapter 6. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore, them, restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there is something that they are not, they deceive themselves. Verse 4, each one should test their own actions. 
Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instructions in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Verse 10, Therefore, we have an opportunity. Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is a very interesting passage. We as a church, as a body of Christ, we need to get it right on this issue. We need to be able to offer restoration when someone messes up, when sin is called out for what it is. I mean, a sin is a sin, and we need to call that out in certain instances and, and, and bring that person back into to relationship. Sometimes I believe the leaders of the church have done a disservice to the body. Something happens, we hush it up because we don't want to embarrass anybody. But the problem is, is like threefold here. First off, if we keep covering things up, it can never be used as a warning. The scriptures say that the younger people should look at the older people, and, and if the older people sin, it should be used as a warning. And, and when believers sin, it wreaks havoc in someone's life. What are the results? Uh, you know, uh, the results affect themselves, of course, and then the results affect their family, and then it also affects the church family. When someone sins in a way that they just, you know, it's not called out and it's secretive and it's hushed up, then no one knows what really happened, and it affects the church body in a way that you couldn't imagine. I mean, I could tell you stories of, of our church. I could tell you stories of previous churches I've been involved in when it has had a profound effect. And everybody's like, I, I don't understand what's going on. Um, things were going so good. And, and then it just all fell apart because it's been hushed up. Secondly, if we keep covering things up, we become the hypocrites, acting like everything is okay. And when the world finds out, what does the world say? Well, that just proves the church is bad. I mean, that's why I don't go to church. Look at them. Thirdly, if we keep covering things up, then it really doesn't give a chance for you know, restoration. And it doesn't help others who are struggling. And they see the person just kind of slinking away and they wonder what really happened. Now, restoration only happens when a person repents and comes back to God. So that's a very interesting concept. You can't be restored if you're not willing to say what I did was wrong against this, you know, my family, um, wrong against the church, wrong against myself, and ultimately wrong against God. A couple of things I'd like to point out in the first verse of, of chapter 6. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught, uh, caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Notice it doesn't say the leadership convene and deal with the person. It says those who live by the Spirit. That's the people of the church. We should all be living by 
the Spirit. The word that's really important in the first verse is the word gently. Gentleness. This is the exact same word that we talked about last week when we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It's time now for a kind of an application of the fruit of the Spirit. It's almost like Paul saying, okay, we just talked about it, now let's apply it. Gentleness is best illustrated in a delicate situation. So, so if someone is caught up in sin, if you have a, you know, it can have a couple of different meanings, you know. But one thing it doesn't mean is this. We as a church body, we have our antennas up. We're sin. Oh, oh, oh I got the sin. I got the sin. It's right over here. No. We don't have a radar up going, you know, back and forth. It's like a sin bogey pops up on the screen. Uh, 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 command, command. We, we have a bogey approaching. It's in sector 5575, and it's approaching quickly. Roger that. Send in the gold squadron to, to search and destroy. That's not what, you know, that's not what being caught up in sin is, uh, should be like. Unfortunately, some in the church have, have come to, you know, from this environment, or maybe they're part of that environment, which is the opposite of the church, you know, uh, covering everything up. Both can be terrible and destructive to the church and to individuals, to relationships. We don't want to allow sin to run rampant, but we don't want to be running around like five-year-olds, you know, uh, you know, going, I'm going to catch you, I'm going to catch you. You know, it's like the sin police are on duty or something. Many people leave the church because of this, and it's a terrible thing. So both of these ways are bad for the church. But we shouldn't let sin run rampant in the church either. We have to stand up and say no to things like adultery, no. Drunkenness, no. Slander, no, 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 no. Gossip, <laughs> no, that's a hard one, isn't it? No, we shouldn't be. Greed and lust, no. These are things that God clearly says are not for us. And we can't downplay these things. We can't be running around, you know, at every little thing, calling out everyone for every little thing they do wrong. Really, they're, they're you know, there are not two options, destroying or ignoring, because it's about restoring. This is the whole goal, is restoration, the second chance. In the Greek, this word is, is a really neat word. It means to, to put a ligament or a bone that is out of joint back into joint, uh, joint. or, or to, to set a broken bone, to, to mend a torn net. Have you ever had a broken bone before? I mean, it hurts. I've been an athletic trainer for many years, you know, at University of Houston. I grew up starting taping ankles in sixth grade and, and learned a lot of stuff before I even got to college and so forth. And that's where kind of the direction of my life was going for a long time. But I've seen a lot of broken bones. I've seen a lot of, you know, shoulders being pulled out of joint. I've seen a lot of stuff, a lot of ligaments torn and messed up. Uh, you know, I've even seen ligaments rolled up like the Achilles ligament where it tears off completely and it just rolls up in the back of the leg and so forth. And, and these things, it hurts. But if you ever had a broken bone, it continues to hurt until it's set back into place. And then the pain is just dulled. Resetting the broken uh, bone does involve some pain. Now, once I was on a youth trip to San Francisco, and we were all playing on the beach near Fort Point, 
down at Chrissy Field. It's a it's a really neat place down there. And and one of the students came up behind me with the with the uh, with the intention of pulling my legs out from underneath me. But as he did, my little toe caught his shoe as I went over, and my little toe ended up going like like sideways. You know, <laughs> it was here, and then all of a sudden it was here. In fact, some of you have met the, the guy that, that actually, the, the student that did this. He's no longer a student. He's a grown man. He, he's got a family. Him and his wife, Bree, visited right before COVID shut everything down and all, all their kids. And, and hopefully we'll, uh, when things get back going and all that, it'll be good. But, you know, I grabbed my toe instantly and I pulled it outward and I pushed it, you know, pulled it to the front to reset it. You know, I, I've done enough of those things with toes. I, I've actually done that on the football field and so forth. You know, so I'm kind of used to stuff like this. But the problem was my toe kept going back sideways. So every time I'd set it, the ligaments wouldn't relax enough for it to stay in place, and it would go back sideways. So then we're like, oh, man, we got to load up all the kids. And I had to drive with my broken toe because it was on my, my gas and brake foot, you know, my right foot. And, uh, you know, we had to drive for about an hour and 15 minutes back home and then drop all the kids off at all their places, all their homes and all that. And then finally, three hours later, I'm at the hospital coming in going, I need my toe reset. Now, they wanted to give me a shot beforehand. and I didn't want the shot because the shot actually hurts more than the resetting does. But they gave me the shot anyway, liability and all that. The shot hurt worse than the toe did. But there is some redemptive value in the pain. When something breaks and tears or fractures, it fractures things like our marriage. It, you know, it breaks relationships amongst family and friends. It tears apart our integrity. And before you know it, you are becoming a person others in the church wouldn't even recognize. Sin has a way of changing us for the bad infiltrating our deepest parts in the soul of our heart. But there's mending and there's healing pathway that, that Paul points out. The word caught up is not a word uh, meaning catch each other. It, it literally means overtaken or ensnarled or, or you know, like ensnarled in sin. Sometimes we're kind of in self-denial about the whole thing or we're just not seeing it. So Paul says, if this is the situation, we have a responsibility as a church community to go to that person in gentleness. They're drowning for whatever reason and they don't see it. Now, when I'm saying, you know, when I say overtaken and not aware, we have to take a step back and ask God a couple things. Are they already in the process of restoration? Does God want to help you know use me to help them are they in a recovery group are they working through these things has it already been pointed out to them but they're working on it this isn't the person that's messed up once this deals with a continuing issue a mistake is a mistake we all make mistakes we all sin but if it's really bad and it's affecting everyone and you know not just having a bad day and you lashed out at someone we have to ask if they're working with someone towards that restoration process. If that is the case, then we should shut our mouths. Do you understand that? 
I sound like a dad now, don't I? Just shut your mouth. Now, I don't try to talk to my kids that way, but, you know. But we should be praying for them and leave them and the person they're working with to do it. Now, if none of this is happening, then brothers and sisters, if someone is caught up in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You know, doing this involves humility. It involves putting them first, understanding that we can be caught up in sin ourselves. You know, if not for the grace of God, there I go, you know. We need to to keep our humility, or we get caught up ourselves in something. Verse 3, if anyone thinks they're, they're something they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they take pride They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. So as we focus on the other person, we should keep in mind and we should check ourselves as to why we're doing what we're doing as we approach another person about sin. You can only push so far. You know, a lot of times, instead of bringing the hammer of criticism down, we need to hold back and we need to approach in, in humility. A great visual of this is, is the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane. You know the scene. Jesus is there with the disciples. The Roman soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus. And this is what John says about what happened. He says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. Cutting off the right ear, the servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup the Father has given me? Luke adds to the story, no more of this, Jesus says. And he touched the man's ears, or ear and healed him. You see, being right doesn't give us permission to slice people up like sushi. (laughs) It's not like Peter was wrong. He was on the right side of justice. There was no justice here. You know, he was like going, what you're doing is wrong. And he was correct. But we can be correct. And if we have a sword on us, it can come out in rudeness and abrasiveness and bad attitudes Or we can withhold love or resources from those that are goofing up. Or we can favor other people. Jesus would say, Alan, put away your sword because all of this, uh, you know, all uh, because of all of what you're doing, Jesus had to heal this person. You know, because Peter did this, he had to heal Malchus's ear from the damage of what Peter's justice did. It's not that Peter was wrong. It's just that he's swinging away with a sword is not the answer. Do you see the delicacy and the balance here? There are times when Jesus has to do the same thing he did for Malchus, and he has to do it for us today. When someone wounds us, someone well-meaning, and they shred us up when it comes to a delicate heart that we have in a delicate situation, there are times when Christ has to come and heal those wounds for us because it hurts. Some of you today need that healing of the heart. Where someone in the church has has truly hurt you. 
where the church is, uh, you know, uh, we need the church to become a safe place for that person again and see Jesus in a new way and begin that relationship that they once had in the church, those deep relationships. You can have those again where we love and support one another and not bruise and cut each other up. Where you might even say, man, I, I really did screw up on that one. But how the church handled it really hurt. Now, it can't be, well, they pointed out my sin. I mean, sometimes sin needs to be pointed out. Jesus calls us to point these things out. But whether the church comes after you with knives or not should be an issue. We shouldn't work some, you know, someone over. We should bring healing and restoration and grace and love and mercy to these situations. I like where Paul goes next with this. He goes from gentleness and restoration and and fans out to the Christian community life. The analogy is that we as Christians should carry each other's burdens. We all have burdens. We all have things that we're going through, you know, don't we? We carry them all the time with us, from work to school, you know, from conversations with parents and, and kids to finances and fear of the future. The scriptures teach us that we are to never carry our burdens all by ourselves. And here's a great challenge for us. We don't do this very well. It is called community. We do some things in the church really well. You know what I'm saying? America, the past 200 years, has done mission work really well. We do Christian music well. We do theology really well. There are some some great seminaries out there where, you know, I mean, the teaching is there. It's deep. And it teaches our leaders. But we don't do other things very well sometimes. The idea of community. I think one reason America is, is geared toward rugged, you know, uh, the problem is we're geared toward rugged individualism. We try to import that American idea and pull ourselves, you know, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps mentality and import that into Christianity. So we try to follow Jesus as a, a solo act. I can do this. And we set ourselves up for a rough go because that is not how it's designed to be lived out. Brothers and sisters are supposed to to take rocks out of each other's backpacks and help carry the burden. Now, you know, I've been going on this fishing trip to Canada for for many years, and I can remember one year my brother, in in a joking way, decided that he was going to put rocks in the bottom of my bed. And we had these foam mattresses, and he took these big rocks, and he put them in my bed as I went to bed. It was all rocky and stuff. And, and, and you know, and that was a good, you know, good for, for a good laugh. But, um, but at the, you know, if that happened night after night after night, that would be different, wouldn't it? See, love is best expressed in community. Joy, the, the joy of the, the Lord is best expressed in community. And, and I could just go off on that if I wanted to for a long time. But let me put it this way. To truly carry a burden for somebody else, I have to get to know that person. Be on the casual level. Be on the surface. You know, getting my feet under their table and, and talking with them. Having them over. we got to build relationships where we can say to each other, to say, you know, in the middle of a conversation, I'm glad you brought that up, brother, because I wanted to talk to you about that. How can I help you walk through that this week? 
or this month? Financial burden? Is there a way I can help you with that? What is your most pressing need? Now, let's see if we can figure this out. Health issues? What can I do with you, you know, do for you? Boredom? How can I be your friend? Just say, hey, man, you don't have to walk through this alone. I'm going to be there for you. I will walk it with you. You need somebody to take you to chemo treatment? I will take you to chemo treatment if you need that. We have got to get this. And we've got to get it together. There, there are all kinds of things where, the, uh, you know, when the, church, uh, when the church gets this, when we open ourselves up and say, I need help, it is, re- you know, what's really sad is when the, last, uh, when the church is the last ones to hear about health issues or health crises. Why is that? Does a person really not believe in prayer? Therefore, you don't call us to let us know? So we can ask, how can we help? See, when the churches get this idea of community, we hear stuff like, you're a single mom? Can we help you with your car? Does it, does it need to be serviced? Does oil need to be changed? Uh, you, you know, would that help you? Or how, other ways, how I can help you? Or you can hear stuff like, how can I help you with that? Or, you know, this, this is painful to lose someone in your life. I've gone through that. You want to talk about that? Or, I have one of those. Do you need to borrow that? Or I have this Target gift card for you. I thought you might need some stuff for the kids, you know, upcoming school year. Or, hey, someone gave me this card. I don't even know who, you know, what's in the envelope. And I'm going to give it to you. I, it's not mine. Don't give me the credit. Or someone came by my house and helped me with that project. You see, it's all about community. It's all about those relationships you know, and the things that we should be doing for each other. Over the years, my wife and I, we've moved quite a few times. Usually, most of it was in the Bay Area, but usually in the same area, from, from apartment to condo to rent home to purchased home, back to an apartment to university campus while I was working there, back to a home, and then finally to Tulare. We stayed here the longest in one home. I mean, it's great. But one of the things that is worst about moving is the cleaning up the place after you get everything out. It is the worst. You're already tired, and then you have to go clean. So at this church, many times over the years, we've gathered as a group to go to someone's house at the very end of their move and help them clean up or deal with you know, different stuff and, you know, and so forth. That is community, being there to help each other out, carrying each other's burdens. When we as a church get this, and we get more of it, it builds a dynamic community. Or this, what does my church need right now for me? Paul at the end of the book here says to share all good things with their instructors. Now, it's not about money. You know, part of it, you know, we should be tithing. Do you tithe? If the answer is no, then you're not doing what God asks you to do. Because that's what the Word of God says, not the pastor. But the word share It means to pray for. It means to serve. It means to give. It means going. It means participating. It means being there. What gaps do you know needs to be filled? Do they need help with the babies and you know in the nursery or the children's ministry or the lawns or the facilities or maybe teaching a Bible study? Did you know this is important? Did you know the pastor doesn't have to be the only one to teach the Word of God? Wow! I know, mind blowing. What skills do you have that you might offer to help serve others in the church with? 
It is the power of the church to reach out to each other and to serve the church. And then to focus outward also. But I'm talking about community here. That's why we're talking about just the church. One thing I want to point out, though, here, Paul says to take care of each other, but not take advantage of each other. In verse 5, he says, he says, for each one should carry their own load. We help each other out, but we don't take advantage. We don't lever it with irresponsible living. Then come begging. I remember back in, you know, in, in my ministry at one point uh, where we were helping somebody out. And we said to them, we will help you, but we've noticed a pattern from you. You're not making sound decisions. And you keep, uh, you know, you keep making these decisions and put you in a bind, and then you come begging. So we want to help you out, but we also want to help you learn how to make better decisions in the middle of all this. So we said, we will bail you out of this situation. But if we do this, you need to go through some of these you know, financial classes, a financial course with us. We'll walk with you in the middle of all this. It's a 12-week, one-hour meeting a week to discuss all types of financial issues and how to make better decisions. This person said yes. They came for two weeks, didn't do any of the things that we asked, and then stopped coming. Well, the next time he got himself into a jam, he came begging, I really need help, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We politely and with gentleness said, I'm sorry, we can't help you on this one. You see, we all personally bear some responsibility in our personal decisions. The church is here to help, but it's not just so you can keep living irresponsibly. This is not how love, uh, the love dynamic works out, Paul says. Now, to bring this home, Paul begins the, the, a neat paragraph about living in the spirit versus life in the flesh. He uses a, a planting metaphor, an illustration. He says in verse 7, Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their own flesh or please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please you know, the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This, you know, there's a correlation of cause and effect because of our choices. Correlation is, is a very interesting topic to, to try to teach kids. I remember in an early age with Brandon, he was sitting there and he's really, he, he, he's just sitting at the table and he's concentrating. He's thinking hard. You could tell he's really thinking about something. So I asked him what he was thinking about. And he answered, chocolate milk. And I kind of laughed. And, uh, but then he asked, where does chocolate milk come from? And it was a serious question. I'm like, well, Brandon, that one's an easy one. They come from brown cows. That's where chocolate milk comes from. And he shook his head. He goes, hmm. you know, like he understood. Two days later, he's sitting at a table, concentrating one more. Hmm. So I asked him, what's your question today? And he looked over at me, and he finally said, if chocolate milk comes from brown cows, where do brown cows come from? I mean, that's a pretty good question, right? I had to think really quick on this one and said, well, Brandon, that's also an easy one, of course. You know, you feed them chocolate. That is where you get chocolate milk. And he shakes his head up and down and he said, that actually makes sense. Cause and effect, you know. 
And for a five-year-old, he'd actually use the word actually. I mean, he would use that. It's crazy. But it's, a, you know, it's about causality. Paul is teaching us that the world works this way. Not with chocolate milk, but with our actions. Every time we, we do an act, like the world, like the flesh, we plant a seed. We plant a seed of the flesh in patience, lustful thoughts, materialism, greed, deception, slander, malice, anger, violence, all these different things. And Paul is saying, you're spreading the stuff around here. He is saying, look, you're going to get what you are throwing around. This isn't rocket science. You flirt with, you know, you flirt at work with someone and it leads to thoughts of, well, what if? What is that sow? What will that reap? And you start to wonder why your life is the way it is. But you look at where you're standing. You're standing in the swamp that you yourself planted. But then he says, you can sow in the spirit. See, the spirit is a different seed. The seed is love and joy and peace and patience. It is kindness and gentleness and self-control. It is goodness. It is the things of the kingdom. Nobility, telling the truth, showing grace, sowing the seeds of God. Paul says, use the seeds of God. We need to use them. And that grows forever. It grows to what? Eternal life. It also speaks to the quality of life. You know, the word is zoe. It's a complex, it's a fascinating word. Every time uh, the, the words eternal life go together, it is the word zoe, the different kind of life. It's eternal. Bios is, is regular life. It rots away. Zoe is eternal life. It is good. It never rots. That is the kind of life that we want. Paul then says in verse 9, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, we have an opportunity. Let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. If you stay in the flesh, if you, become, you, know, you become weary. But if you stay in the spirit, we become a community, a beautiful, beautiful community. Let's finish with the rest. Paul has been dictating this to a scribe, but now he grabs a pen from the scribe and, 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 or the writing utensil, whatever you want to call it, and he starts writing in his own hand. He says in verse 11, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So, he, you know, he wasn't used to writing all the time. Those of you, and he goes on, he says, Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Basically, they're minimizing the cross is what Paul is saying. All the arguments from the beginning of this letter, all of that is nothing of the real gospel Paul is telling us. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. It's a war of theology, and they were trying to win. Verse 14, May I never, count, never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, though through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. See, what counts is this. 
Have you met Jesus? Has he transformed you into a new creation? You can't earn this through religious activity. It is about the cross, and it is about Christ, and that is it. Verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. I love the next verse Paul writes. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear my own body the marks of Jesus. Basically, it says, leave me alone with this silly stuff, guys. Don't listen to these people who are, who are preaching a different gospel. I have enough to deal with. I wish I didn't need to correct you here. If you live in the Spirit, I wouldn't need to. Just follow what you've been taught from the Word of God. Then it ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with you in spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. What a great letter this is. Paul is just, uh, as a theologian and everything, I mean... Uh, God knew what he was doing when he picked Paul to do all these ministries. And of course God knew. I mean, he's all-knowing, you know. But, man, Paul is just, he's just right on point. It's amazing what we can learn and what we've learned through this book. But I want to encourage us to, that last part is so important of the letter of being a community. Going beyond, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. Now, I know we can't do that right now. We need to be contacting each other, see how we're doing at home and, and so forth during this time. But when we get back to the, the church and, and so forth, we need to be the body just as much there also. We need to be helping each other out. We need to be seeing, you know, meeting each other's needs and carrying each other's burdens. And those who are more mature need to go, you know what, I can handle this burden uh, as long as you guys are walking with me. I can do this, so I can carry my own stuff, but I need your help, I need your encouragement, I need those things. I don't need you to take my burden, but I just need your, your encouragement to walk along beside me as I go through this. There are so many different things we can do as a community if we allow the Holy Spirit to change us, change us into being like Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, for Paul. We thank you for all the people that that he met along the way, that, that said, yes, I believe that. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us who have said, yes, I believe that. I believe the Word of God. I believe that, that God is true, that Jesus died for my sins, that it's all about the cross. I pray that I start living my life on a daily basis with that in mind, that my actions, my decisions, my, my thoughts, all those things line up with what I say I believe. I pray, Lord, that you use us to encourage one another, to help each other out with our burdens, to be a real community, that you would start building something that would not only change our church, but change our community and change our town. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may his face never turn from you. May he bless you. May it shine on you. And may you reflect that into the church community. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You guys have a wonderful day.